Well, good morning. If uh, you've got your Bibles, go ahead and take them up and turn with me to Joshua chapter 3 is where we're going to be spending our time uh, this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, I do want to invite you to use one of the pew Bibles that are in front of you. Uh, the passage can be found on page 168 this morning if you have um, if you have trouble finding it. But Joshua chapter 3, um, just a quick note that uh, after we're through studying God's Word, uh, I will be inviting uh, Gil Jacobs, our vice chair chairman of our elder board up to just give you a senior pastor update. And so we'd encourage you uh, to stick around after I pray. Don't uh, go running off quite yet as he's got some good, important updates for us. Um, This passage that we're going to look at today can really be broken up into two different sections. If we had the time, we would actually turn this into two different sermons probably. Uh, But through these two different sections, I want you to remember four words, two words from each section, okay? Uh, these are not points, merely um, uh, points on a road map. This is to help you kind of see where we're going, and you'll hear these words throughout the sermon. But the four words are this. I'm giving you them in advance so that you can be alert looking for them. The words are fix, focus, presence, power. Fix, focus, presence, power. Let me go ahead and read Joshua 3, and we'll begin. Verse 1, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord God, your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go. For you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant... When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you uh, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe of man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap." 
So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped into the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Now, Father, I ask that you would remove any obstacles from our hearts, open our eyes to your living word, Help us focus, Lord, on what you have for us today. Would you open our ears? Would you open our eyes? Would you open our hearts? And in your holy name I pray. Amen. It's November 2nd, 2016, and I am sitting in my living room, biting my nails as I watch my Cleveland Indians play in Game 7 of the World Series. It's a familiar feeling uh, to the last time they were in there 20 years ago in 1997. I was so much uh, younger then, and after all these years, had fully recovered from uh, from the moment of defeat. And it was now time for my favorite team to overcome the obstacles and become world champs. However, as many of you know, Cleveland fans go through this. As I watched it play out, the Indians could just not overcome the setbacks and the dreaded feeling of disappointment and loss flooded my heart once more as I found, uh, as I witnessed the final out uh, play and, uh, and I witnessed the Chicago Cubs celebrate a World Series win on my own turf, on our own turf. If you have ever been involved in sports, whether you coach or play or you're involved to any capacity, you will understand that there is a driving theme of having to overcome obstacles in order to achieve your goals. There will not be a time that you don't experience some kind of roadblock on your path to victory. So much so that uh, Michael Jordan, uh, who one of the greatest basketball players of all time, said that uh, obstacles don't have to stop you. If you run into a wall, don't turn around and give up. Figure out how to climb it, go through it, or work around it. See, there is a philosophy in our country of sorts that's been around for several decades that Michael Jordan would affirm that says that I can be victorious if I simply muster up enough strength to overcome the obstacles. I can can win if I just believe it, if I have enough faith to do it. If If I just simply will it to happen, I can overcome the obstacles. And you may want this morning to sit here and say, Mike, I want you to give me a pep talk that I can overcome my obstacles. Well, I'm sorry to say that this is not what I am here to do. (laughs) There is a sobering reality in life that stands in stark contrast to this 
philosophy, that bottom line, failure is in the very fabric of life. Failure is an option. Call me a realist, but there are obstacles in your life that are too big, that are too powerful, that are too detrimental, that you will not be able to overcome them by your own power. That's a real pep way to start, is it not? (laughs) And so where is our hope when failure is so much a fabric in our life? Where do we turn when these giant obstacles come our way? This may have been what the Israelites are thinking as they stood on the doorstep of the promised land so close to their goal, so close to their victory. This passage that we read is extremely significant in the Bible as it marks the fulfillment of God's promises that he's made to the Israelites that was six centuries in the making. God promised the Israelites the land of Canaan, and they are finally ready to take their first step into it. See, these people have been nomads their entire life. They have been wanderers. Their ancestors have been wandering the face of the earth, and here they are. They are finally home. They are finally in a place that they can settle, finally in a place that they can find rest. And we're told at the beginning of their passage that they moved their camp six miles west and they lodged right next to the Jordan River. You can imagine the sense of anticipation and excitement that they had. That home was right there. But unfortunately, there is one thing keeping them out and it was a raging river. And so while there is uh, anticipation and there is excitement, there was also probably trepidation and uncertainty. And we're told that they had three days to mull over this obstacle at hand. You've got millions of people in Israel camped out looking at this seemingly impossible task, thinking how on earth are we going to get across this thing? How on earth are we going to get delivered into the promised land? However, we know, we're told that Joshua had a plan. He had a plan because God told him the plan. But in order to implement the plan, there was a preparation that needed to be done by the Israelites. Now, in our own mind, as you look at that, you might think the preparation might consist of some kind of, of plan to build a boat or build a bridge. What can we do to get across the Jordan? But the preparation had, had nothing of the such. What does Joshua tell the people to do? He actually commands them, in preparation, I want you to do two things. The first thing I want you to do is to fix your eyes. Fix your eyes specifically on the Ark of the Covenant. Fix your eyes on the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant has a prominent presence here in Joshua 3 and even into chapter 4. It's mentioned 17 different times and completely dominates our passage. And so it's important to understand what the thing actually is. You see, the original reader would have understood this, had a clear understanding of the importance of the ark in the story. However, most of us today, most of what we know about the ark of the covenant is probably from Indiana Jones. 
And as much as I love Harrison Ford, he really shouldn't be teaching you Bible history. The ark was one of the most sacred objects in ancient Israel. It essentially was a wooden box that was overlaid in gold. It was about four and a half feet wide and then about two and a half feet tall, two and a half uh, feet, feet in length. Um, and it, would, uh, it was overlaid in gold. It had two sculptures of angels on top of it pointing towards each other, specifically cherubim. And then on the inside, it contained a few ancient relics and it included a jar of manna. It included uh, Aaron's staff from, from the Exodus, uh, Moses' secondhand man, and it also included a copy of the Ten Commandments. But it was so much more than just a chest of ancient relics. It was so much more. The, the ark represented the very presence of God. It was a visible representation of the invisible God. And not only did they associate it with God's presence, they associated it with his power. And so for Joshua to tell his people, fix your eyes on the Ark of the Covenant, what he's telling them, it's akin to saying, fix your eyes on God himself. To fix your eyes on the Ark physically was to fix your eyes on God spiritually. And the Israelites were also told to keep their distance. About 2,000 cubits, which in our time, that would be about a half of a mile. He's saying, let the ark go out about a half of a mile before you. And there's a very specific reason that we're given in verse 4. It's so that you can keep the ark in your sight and let it guide you. Joshua is saying, hey, you, you don't know this way. You've never been here before, but the Lord God, who is the Lord of all the earth, knows where you're to go. And if you don't follow him, you're going to get lost. Essentially, Joshua is saying is not only fix your eyes on God, but let him be your guide. Let him be your leader. Follow him as the leaders. The, the, the Israelites are not allowed to go rogue and chart their own course. They're only to go where God goes. The space between uh, the ark also allows them to see the full picture of how this thing is going to play out. Right? If they were up close, they wouldn't be given the opportunity to see all of God's miraculous work in, in its entirety. Uh, if they were close up, uh, they would only see a piece. But now, being set back, they can see everything. God is essentially saying, hey, I want you, I am showing you the entire playing field that I am in. I want you to see my wonderful work as a whole. I want you to see the entire playing field that I am using to demonstrate my power. They're up against an impossible obstacle, and God ensures that they have a very clear picture of what's happening. It's almost as if God is saying, hey, check this out. Watch this. We have to understand that we are mere spectators, witnesses to God's marvelous work. God is the one doing the amazing. God is the one doing the miraculous work. We are only responsible to watch, trust, obey, and follow after him. 
And then there's a wonderful picture of affirmation here as the ark goes before, ahead of God's people. He's going before them. And how encouraging it is to know that they are walking a path that God is going before them. In a sense, we could take this and apply it in our modern context to say, as I walk through life, God has gone before me. God is forging the the path ahead of me. He is making a way for us. And there is no obstacle that God uh, expects you to overcome that he hasn't first already overcome. There is no river that God expects you to cross that he hasn't already crossed. There is no pain that you could feel that God has not already felt. And this is most clearly demonstrated through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The Israelites had the ark which was a physical representation of the invisible God. We don't just have a symbolic representation of the, phys- of the presence of God. We have a physical and literal presence of God in Jesus. And that's why we call him Emmanuel, God with us. And the path that we walk has already been walked by Jesus. Just as the ark went ahead of the Israelites, Jesus has gone before us into death and into life. This is why there's so much assurance in following Jesus, because if I'm following him, that means I'm on the same path. And if I'm on the same path, I know that it leads into death. But if it leads into death and I'm following the path of Jesus, then I know that I will be resurrected on the other side, because that is the path that Jesus walked. That is the path that Jesus has forged. It means that I share not only in his death, but I share in his resurrection and I receive life. So our application this morning is as Jesus leads, we fix our eyes on him and follow. This is what Jesus, what Joshua commanded his Israelites, fix your eyes on God, on Yahweh. And then he tells them to focus their hearts. Focus, focus your heart. In verse 5, Joshua instructs his people to consecrate themselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. The word wonders here is reserved in scripture to describe only the spectacular achievements that only God can accomplish. These are the type of miraculous acts that leave us as bystanders, as spectators, with our jaws on the floor. These are the type of wonders that Joshua is is talking about. But in order to appreciate his works for what they really are, in order to appreciate and enjoy God's intentions in these wondrous acts, we're told that the Israelites must consecrate themselves. In the most basic sense, this word consecrate means that they would wash themselves and put clean clothes on. And this was very significant in this time because in this context, in this culture, water was a luxury and wasn't really used too much for personal hygiene. They did not bathe nearly uh, as often as we do or should for that matter. You will all be pleased to know that I took a shower this morning But this is not something that they did on a regular basis. However, there is a much deeper meaning in the act of washing and changing into clean clothes. Just as the Ark of the Covenant 
is a, is a physical representation of a greater spiritual reality, so is consecration. In the Bible, oftentimes when you saw people washing themselves and washing one's clothes, it typically symbolized a new beginning with God. There is an act of confession wrapped up into this. It's putting our sins over to God, handing them over to him. And this is why in scripture, you will often see sin is described as a defilement, literally a a dirt, a dirt that gets stuck on us that needs to be clean. And so uh, if, if, if God wants us to follow him and experience his wonderful, wonderful, wondrous works, we must be cleaned. We must be cleaned. And so the Israelites are ritually preparing themselves to see God's power in action and preparing themselves to experience God's presence in the fullest sense. This shows us that this isn't just a military invasion. This is a religious moment. This is a holy moment. Understand that the significance of their actions on what they're doing on the, on the, it's not what they're doing on the outside, but what they're doing on the, the inside. They are focusing their hearts. They are taking their time to make themselves right before God. They are intentionally taking the time to pause right now before they move onward in order to experience God's presence. Essentially what Joshua is saying is, hey, we are going to move onward. We are going to conquer. We are going to advance. But before we do that, there is an extremely important step. We have to stop and focus our hearts. Unfortunately, in our pace of life, our own life and our own routine often doesn't allow us to do this. If we ever expect to experience God's work, his wonderful, wondrous work in our own life. Sometimes we just need to stop. You need to stop what you're doing and pause. I have found that when we embrace the silence, the awkwardness that we don't really like, in those moments, it makes it so much easier to focus my heart, to give my sins over to God when I just stop, when I don't let the busyness of life serve as an antidote to numb my pain and to numb my, just my, my whole life experience. We need to stop before we move ahead. We need to pause before we move onward. If we are not, if I am not absolutely awestruck by God's splendor, if I do not understand the wonders of God, if I do not grasp the wonders of the gospel, is it perhaps because I have failed to focus my heart? Is it because we haven't prepared our hearts 
to see God's glory. We, we are perhaps so caught up in routine that we fail to see God's radiance and in in his brilliance. It begs the question, am I blinded to God's greatness because my heart is not set right? Is, is my heart hardened in some fashion that I cannot see God for who he truly is? Am I getting in the way? The Israelites consecrated themselves. They set their hearts right before God. And this is good because it prepared them to experience God's presence. And now the Jordan River probably doesn't seem as great of an obstacle uh, as they once thought. If they didn't do these things, there may have been a great temptation to turn back. Perhaps some of the Israelites saw that raging river at first and said, well, at least we tried. We, we might as well turn back and go back to what we're familiar with and go back to what we're comfortable with. But they didn't. They fixed their eyes. They focused their heart on, on God and his purposes. And now they were not going to let a river discourage them. We have been talking a lot lately about becoming a mission church, one that proudly reaches to the outsider to, 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 to uh, bring them in for the sake of the gospel, to share with them the, the gospel. However, if you look at our church, there is a million and one different obstacles in our way. There are, there are several obstacles that hinder that mission, and there's a million and one things that we can focus on that seem to be in our way. A multitude of Jordan rivers, a number of rivers that can uh, easily take the wind out of our sails. And so as, as a church, corporately, what are we to do when such obstacles get in the way and are discouraging and seem to stop us in our tracks? This is the heart of this passage right here in those moments. And the New Testament affirms it. Hebrews uh, 12, the first three verses of Hebrews 12, I have to tell you, have served uh, as an anthem for myself during this interim period. I hope they can serve as an anthem for our church. Take a look at what it says, Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners that you will not grow weary and lose heart. How do we not grow weary? How do we not lose heart? When we come up against these giant Jordan River size obstacles in your life and in the life of the church, what is the remedy for discouragement? Fix your eyes and focus your heart on Jesus. Consider him who went to the cross. Consider Christ so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Do the obstacles in my own life prompt me to retreat, to safety, to comfort, and worst of all, to passiveness? If this is the case, perhaps your eyes are fixed on something they shouldn't be fixed on. Perhaps your heart has been hardened. The Israelites prepared themselves 
not with brick and mortar, not with hammers and nails. They prepared themselves by fixing their eyes on the ark and focusing their hearts. And now they're ready to experience the living God. And boy, he doesn't disappoint. We find that the rest of the chapter is all about God and his work, his work of delivering his people into the promised land. And you may read this and think, why on earth would God bring them into the promised land in this way? Couldn't there be an easier way that wouldn't have given the Israelites such a heart attack? Isn't isn't there another way that he could have done this? Well, yes, he could have. But I think God was extremely intentional by bringing them into Canaan uh, by, via crossing over the Jordan. And we see God's motivation in this specifically in verse 10. Take a, take a look at verse 10. There's two things in there. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, and a whole bunch of other ites. Did you, did you catch that? There's two reasons, two different things that he wants to communicate to the Israelites. First, number one, here is how you shall know that what? The living God is among you. He wants the Israelites to be aware of his presence, that he isn't going anywhere, that he's fulfilling the promise from Joshua in chapter one, where he says, the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I'm on your side and you can depend on me because I'm right here. I am present. And not only am I among you, I am a living God among you. I am a living force. And you will know that I'm a living force because I am about to manipulate the laws of nature. Just as you are living and you can manipulate with your hand a small little drip of water, I am going to outstretch my mighty hand and halt the river in a heap. Tell me another God that can do that. You can't because they're dead. I'm the living God. I am a living presence. I am the Lord over all the earth. God wants the Israelites to know of his living presence, but he also wants them to know of his power. Here is how you will know not only that I'm the living God, but that I am also a force that is not to be reckoned with. This is how you know that I am a force that's not to be reckoned with. We found out later in in the chapter that the Jordan is currently at flood stage. Under normal circumstances, this river is probably only about 100 feet wide, but it's springtime. And there's a nearby mountain range where the snow is melting and they've experienced spring rain. And so the Jordan River is no longer 100 feet wide. It's about a mile wide. And because of the escalation of the terrain, the current of the Jordan River is probably flowing up to 40 miles an hour. So this isn't just a little gentle stream. This is a raging, potentially deadly river. And so God, who could have brought the Israelites here at any other time in the year, decides to bring them to the Jordan when it's at its fiercest. It's almost like he's telling the Israelites, you see how powerful this river is? Let me tell you what power is. 
Let me show you how powerful I am. God, in a sense right now, is showing off. He is showing off his might. And this was a tendency of God throughout Scripture because God loves to show off how powerful he is in the midst of our struggle and our helplessness. God loves to swoop in and save the day. Overcoming the impossible is God's specialty. And how does this relate to us? I love what uh, Dale Ralph Davis says. This is one of the commentators that I've been using, and this is what he writes on the matter. He says, perhaps he brings us into impossible circumstances, situations so bleak and hopeless for the very purpose of impressing upon us that if we make it through, if we endure it, if we are not overwhelmed and washed away, it will be only because of his grace and power. This is his way of teaching us our own inability and helplessness in order that we may realize that our help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Maybe we have a very weak view of God. And the reason we have a very weak view of God is because we have a very strong view of ourselves. Maybe we don't see God's power because we're too dependent on our own power. But what happens when you come up against an obstacle that is impossible, that is insurmountable, that in no way on God's green earth am I going to be able to overcome this? What happens when we come up against impossible circumstances that are so bleak and hopeless? We know that the Jordan River was not going to be the last obstacle that the Israelites were going to face. They were going to go into the promised land and they were going to need to go into war. They were going to go into battle with these different tribes. And so how on earth can they go up against their enemies? How on earth can they have the hope and not be um, so discouraged? You can imagine them going into war saying, how can we be so sure of this? How do, we, how do we know our victory is at hand? I would imagine that they would maybe feel fearful or hesitant when they came up against them. But in those moments of discouragement, in those moments of wonder, in those moments where they're not 100% sure, they would remember God, the living God over all the earth who is present with them, once made the Jordan River stand up in a heap. They would go into battle knowing that if God can make the Jordan River halt, then how much more can he be with us as we face our enemies? If God has authority over the Jordan River, the mighty Jordan River, how much more does he not have authority over our enemies? How much more will he overcome our enemies without fail? There is a beautiful application here for us. We are connected to the Israelites in this passage. Because the God that we worshiped this very morning is the same living God that stopped the Jordan in its path. We are worshiping the same God. And if God can do that, how much more? Can he handle the impossible obstacles in my own life? In the same way, 
We are walking a path that we have never been on before. We are experiencing obstacles, intense obstacles every day. And in those times in your life, you may look to God and say, God, you are asking me to do something impossible. You are asking me to overcome something unreasonable. God, I can't do this. I cannot overcome this sin. I cannot go through the death of a child. I cannot experience the health issues. I cannot experience the the loss of a job. And God will turn to us and he'll say, I am not asking you to do those things. I am going to do them for you. And you are going to sit and watch. You are going to sit and watch my wonderful power. You're going to watch my wonderful deeds. And, and I am going to handle these as I see fit. It's your job to watch. Just fix your eyes on me. Focus your heart on me. Trust in my power. Take the step forward and be faithful to me. And I may not fix this in the way that you want it to be fixed, but you need to trust that I am going to take care of this. I am going to handle this. The purpose of our text, the application of our text is the adequacy of God. To see that God is not merely our fearless leader, but a living God who intervenes with his creation in a powerful way when his will must be accomplished. God has a will for our church. God has a will for your life. God has a will for this world. And he, by all means, will intervene to accomplish his purposes. This is what he does for the Israelites. This is what he does for us. And there is no river that you can come against that is too strong for God. And this is demonstrated in that God conquered the final and most powerful obstacle of all, death itself. This is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. Take a look. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come the pass to pass the saying that is written. What he's saying is when, when, when the end times occurs, this shall come to pass. It is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death is the great equalizer. We all end up in the ground someday. However, Paul is bold in this passage, staring down death itself, taunting it, saying, death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? You've lost. Why is Paul filled with such confidence? Because he has fixed his eyes and he has focused his heart on Jesus and he has seen by God's powerful presence a Jesus Christ risen from the grave. And as I follow Jesus in life, I will follow him into death. And as I follow him into death, then and only then by following Jesus, will I share in his resurrection and enjoy his presence forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you 
for your goodness, the goodness of your word and your promised presence, Father. I understand that there are people going through obstacles in this room at this very moment that seem insurmountable even for you. But let us be reminded, Father, that there is nothing that you can't overcome. And let us follow you through it. And in your holy name I pray. Amen.